0: This is News Source 1 Michiana, your balanced source of news for the community. Welcome to Michiana Speak Out with Keith Thews, an interactive podcast where we can talk to you or you can speak to us. The show begins right after the national news.
1: News Nation This Hour, I'm Vic Vaughn. Social media executives are testifying today in Washington about the safety of their youngest users, including a Senate proposal aimed at preventing underage accounts. Snapchat's Jennifer Stout.
2: We'd love to talk to you a bit more about no, no, some of uh, the we've issues. been
3: issues. Ta- Listen, this is this is just what drives
1: us crazy. We want to talk. We want to talk. We want to talk. This bill's been out there for years and you still don't have a view on it. Do you support it or not?
3: I think there are things that we would like to work with you on.
1: From an exchange with Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, YouTube and TikTok officials are also testifying. New York and New Jersey are under states of emergency with a nor'easter. News Nation's Paul Gerke reports from Queens.
4: The rain is slow enough that we haven't seen the sort of flooding we saw when Ida's remnants came through last month. No reports of fatalities
5: or any injuries.
1: Massachusetts and Rhode Island are expecting wind gusts over 70 miles an hour. An FDA advisory panel is considering whether to approve Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for kids aged 5 through 11. Dr. Timothy Quinn of Quinn Healthcare in Mississippi thinks it'd be a game changer.
6: The bottom line is children are vulnerable because
7: they've not been eligible 5 to 11. I mean, children 12 and older, they've been getting their vaccinations. We have to understand that children... They have a harder time
6: sticking to wearing your mask and social distancing.
1: If Pfizer gets FDA approval and CDC recommendation, kids could get it as early as next week. The Biden administration will allow unvaccinated foreign nationals to visit the U.S., but only from countries dealing with a shortage of COVID-19 vaccines. The AP's Julie Walker reports.
0: The new policy comes as the Biden administration moves away from restrictions that ban non-essential travel from several dozen countries, most of Europe, China, Brazil, South Africa, India, and Iran, and instead focuses on classifying individuals by the risk they pose to others.
1: New home sales jumped 14 percent last month. Today's report by the U.S. Commerce Department put September's growth at the fastest pace in six months. They fell 1.4 percent in August. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at newsnationnow.com and the News Nation Now app. I'm Vic Vaughn.
7: Happy Tuesday. It is Tuesday, October the 26, 2021. It's time for the World Series to happen tonight between the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros. I guess all of you have your own favorites if you are baseball fanatics. um, I'm sure some of you also are sports bettors, and unless your name is Carl, joke joke, you are probably putting your money down on one team or the other. Not that we're supporting gambling, but it is a World Series, and it's time for a lot of fun. And... Anyway, yesterday we got a chance to uh, focus on a couple of events that are coming up this week. We have the Trunk or Treat on the 28th down at the Excel Center, and then this weekend coming up, we have the Michiana Event Center having their motorsports and short track dirt race inside uh, for the mini wedges and the wedges for the kids. What an exciting time it is again for there, and... So we got a chance to share. If you didn't get a chance to listen to yesterday's podcast, uh, go ahead and do so. Don't have much going on today. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the uh, remembrance of the tornado outbreak from my perspective back in uh, 2001 October 24th 2001 Uh, we had some history of that yesterday as Sunday was the 20th anniversary of that outbreak Um, October outbreaks rather unusual but they do happen and so obviously we do have to be on guard for the weather so we come back we'll take one more look back at that outbreak 20 years later from my personal recollections as a storm chaser back then. So it's all coming up here on Ms. Speak Out.
3: When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood? Or an earthquake is destroying buildings? When a tornado is tearing through town, or a hurricane strikes, or is the best time, perhaps, today. During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. And it's not always as simple as using your cell phone. That's why now is the time to take action. Go to ready.gov slash communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.
7: All right, you're listening to Michigan Speak out on News Source 1 Michigan. My name is Keith Thews, Your afternoon host. And if you are missing the download on Anchor or Podbay or Spotify, you can always catch us most of the time on our I Radio Channel. And if you got a chance to uh, see the announcement, I got some of our shows, um, the images from them, posted in our announcement section so you get a chance to see what we do feature on our I Radio 24 7 talk radio channel. Well, anyway, as I said, uh, 20 years ago on Sunday, which would been Wednesday, October 24th, 2001. Um, was the outbreak of severe weather here in Michiana. One of those rare things, but they do happen, as I said. And as I mentioned, I was a storm chaser back then, in addition to uh, teaching school. And uh, I remember that Saturday that there was a word that, hey, we're going to have some storms later in the week. Uh, I remember doing dealing with leaves, and my friends kind of getting ticked off of me because I didn't do with them enough, and they were dealing with the brunt of them. But I remember there was uh, quite a lot of concern as the days progressed that uh, some very violent weather could be happening. And I remember um, reading some of the message boards, if you remember those days back then before Facebook was around, Those message boards on the storm chasing and storm discussions were indicating that uh, Wednesday could be pretty wild and hairy. Um, A lot of the chaser community I remember was talking about going down like south of uh, US 30, like around the US 24 corridor, um, expecting that the severe weather was to come. I also monitored a friend of mine's page, Blake Navtel. Uh, he got me doing some chasing or into that. Um, and he's a while regarded chaser in the Midwest. And uh, Blake was talking about going to the uh, Indiana-Illinois border that day uh, to, to catch the storms and uh, videotape them. Well, Wednesday came and turned on the internet with the uh, old dial-up modem pulled it up and lo to my behold there was a high risk for severe thunderstorms and that's as high as you can go for an event by the storm prediction center so talk about chasers christmas the event was on and with the fact that we they put northern indiana and southern lower michigan in the bullseye for that storm outbreak um, i was quite concerned i even contacted hawthorne elementary where i substitute at times to alert uh, the principal to say hey bad weather's a coming well, at the time, I was uh, doing videoing for um, a different group called USAWSSC um, with a guy named Patrick Gannon out of Virginia, and uh, so I got together that morning with a handicapped friend of mine, Bill Kettner. We loaded up his minivan, green minivan, with uh, the police scanner, we are... our TV, my little TV I used to carry when I chased, or like Blake did, and we got ready to load up and head on out. First destination we went to was a buddy of mine. Uh, his name is James. was a pastor in Roanoke, Indiana, and or James, uh, sorry, Jason Gross, Jason Gross. So we went down there to Roanoke to his United Methodist Church, and he's like, "Man, you guys are bringing the storms. Get out of here." <laughs> uh, so we kind of prepared for the storms. He didn't want the storms coming his way, but he would in fact have some close um, interaction with the storms a little bit later on. Him and his wife Debbie. But from there, we uh, took off and headed westbound in order to meet the storms. And we finally got ready to meet them just outside of Rochester. That was mid-afternoon. Now we had heard and recorded the alerts that were coming on the tornado watch which was issued as a particularly dangerous situation watch which is the highest tornado watch you can go which means uh, we are going to be in for it and uh, as the storms were coming we weren't sure if they were going to hit with the severity but as it got closer we knew something bad was going to happen while we were setting up in rochester blake was getting pummeled with 90 mile per hour winds at the state line just inside um, it was quite hair-raising from him, and he got um, videotape of that st- as a, as the line blew through into the state. Before the storms came into the Rochester area, my friend Bill Kettner and I were seeing some dropping from the uh, from the clouds. This uh, we thought might have been a funnel clouds or something, but apparently was in the wrong end of the storm in the front. Um, but it still kind of gave us uh, a few moments to wonder what was going on. The temperature began to drop, and we saw the rain coming in over a farmer 's field and When it hit, it hit with ferocity. Not tornadoes but at least seventy mile hour winds and small hail was rocking that minivan of bills quite well after the storm had passed and the storm only lasted for at least two to two minutes, maybe a little bit around there. Uh, we left, we'd let some folks know we were out there chasing and videoing, then we started hearing the word from our neck of the woods, from Elkhart and South Bend, and Shell 16 and 22 were covering the very high winds that were just pummeling the area, and uh, Crumstown had already been hit with, the, uh, with this tornado, and the storm was uh, just going like gangbusters. I can remember Norm Stanglin and the folks from 22 talking to folks and even Channel 16 uh, alerting what was going on. I think it was Mike Hoffman at the time. Uh, so we started heading back, and then that's when we started hearing more and more about um, the tornadoes, ones that were in western St. Joseph County in the area, and then we started hearing about COBA screen being hit and about um, Osceola, and I started wondering about what was going on if we were gonna make it through. Well, we got back about five o'clock after five and uh, had to divert around some areas of Osceola, and then that's when we found out a little bit more about what was going on with the uh, COVID screen, which a friend of mine, Kelly Hofflander Torrance, was in charge of emergency management, and she was staked out with a few folks uh, blocking traffic, uh, going, to Cobus Green which the front of the area was the area that was impacted uh, we did learn of loss of life in the Cobus or sorry in the Crumstown area and then also of the uh, one tornado that hit on the north side of Warsaw which blew in a wall to factory uh, just north of the old Petro Brothers 4 which is north of uh, Stereo 15 and US 30 that were that uh, Tornado came through, and there was some pretty neat video of it going over the water. Um, From what I recall, the storm did get pretty close to North Webster, which was the site of the uh, still new National Weather Service office down there. But all in all, it was a a pretty amazing experience, one that I will not forget. So, October twenty-fourth, oh one, an outbreak of severe weather um, that won't be forgotten. Well, we have more coming up here on the show. Stay tuned. You're listening to Michiana Speak Out on News Source One, Michiana.
0: Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. News Source 1, Michiana is still your station for happy and whole in him and school and community. News from Sylvia Stark. Michiana Racing coverage still expounds with Ron Verash and we give a hearty station welcome to Fred Webster who will cover Plymouth and Rochester news. More is coming next.
7: And yeah, welcome back to Michiana Speakout for this very beautiful Tuesday afternoon, October 26th. Well, it is time for the World Series to kick off. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program today, we have the Astros, we have the Braves, and we're going to give you a preview of that. But before we do from Sports Map Houston, let's give you an update on the flooding situation for Michiana.
8: This is a new Source One, Mikey Weather Advisory for residents near rivers and creeks. Flood Statement National Weather Service Northern Indiana 913 AM EDT Tuesday 26 October 2021, The Flood Warning Continues for the Following Rivers in Indiana Michigan St. Joseph River Michigan at South Bend affecting Elkhart, Street Joseph and Berrien Counties Elkhart River at Goshen affecting Noble and Elkhart Counties North Branch Elkhart River at Cosperville affecting Noble County Minor river flooding is expected due to recent heavy rainfall. Precautionary forward slash preparedness actions. Never drive vehicles through flooded areas. The water may be too deep to allow safe passage. Never allow children to play in or near flood waters. Stay tuned to NOAA Weather Radio or local media for further statements and updated forecasts. Detailed river forecasts and additional information can be found at www.weather.gov forward slash eyes under rivers and lakes. The next statement will be issued late tonight. 913 EDT Tuesday, the 26th of October, 2021, the flood warning is now in effect until Saturday morning. The flood warning continues for the St. Joseph River, Michigan at South Bend. Asterisk until Saturday morning. Asterisk at 8.15 a.m. EDT Tuesday the stage was 5.5 feet. Asterisk flood stage is 5.5 feet. Asterisk minor flooding is forecast. Asterisk forecast, the river is expected to rise to a crest of 6.2 feet just after midnight tonight. It will then fall below flood stage Friday morning. Asterisk impact, at 8.0 feet. Floodwaters begin to affect river parks and roads and may affect portions of Northside Boulevard in the area of Veterans Memorial Park, and Riverside Drive in the areas south of Leeper Park, Bikeller Park and Woodland Park. High water may cause flooding of basements and interfere with some commercial activities. Flood Statement National Weather Service Northern Indiana 913 EDT Tuesday 26 October 2021, the flood warning continues for the following rivers in Indiana. Michigan. St. Joseph River, Michigan at South Bend affecting Elkhart, Street, Joseph and Berrien counties. Elkhart River at Goshen affecting Noble and Elkhart counties. North Branch Elkhart River at Cosperville affecting Noble County. Dot minor river flooding is expected due to recent heavy rainfall. Precautionary forward slash preparedness actions. Never drive vehicles through flooded areas. The water may be too deep to allow safe passage. Never allow children to play in or near flood waters. Stay tuned to NOAA Weather Radio or local media for further statements and updated forecasts. Detailed river forecasts and additional information can be found at www.weather.gov forward slash eyes under rivers and lakes. The next statement will be issued late tonight. Flood statement hash 2913 EDT Tuesday, the 26th of October, 2021. The flood warning is now in effect until early Friday morning. The flood warning continues for the Elkhart River at Goshen. Asterisk until early Friday morning. Asterisk at 8:45 AM EDT Tuesday. The stage was 6.8 feet. Asterisk flood stage is 7.0 feet. Asterisk minor flooding is forecast. Asterisk Forecast, the river is expected to rise above flood stage late this morning to a crest of 7.7 feet just after midnight tonight. It will then fall below flood stage early Thursday morning. Asterisk Impact, at 9.0 feet, water closes Chicago Avenue and Denver Street in Goshen. Rogers Park is completely flooded.
2: Welcome to Polo Point's World Series Edition. I'm Brandon Strange, and the guy in the window to my left and your right is Charlie Polo, who you can hear weekdays 10 to noon on ESPN 97.5, 92.5, or anytime on demand on podcast. Charlie, um, man, we find ourselves spoiled getting to cover a third World Series in five years. And baseball especially, this run for by the Astros has been one of the more impressive runs we've seen any team put together in this span. And poetically, if not ironically, uh, after getting moved over to the AL, the Astros find themselves once again staring at an old NL rival and the Braves as their final boss in this 2021 revenge tour. So I want to start with the guys on the mound. How do you see these two pitching staffs matching up?
4: Well, you know, sometimes you can pull that slice out of the toaster and oh boy, you scrape off the burnt part and it's just fine. That was the Red Sox series, right? Fromber was terrible Garcia was terrible, but if you're only as good as your last time on the mound, well, they're Bob Gibson and Lefty Grove or something like that. So just as in the Red Sox series with a short series of games against the Braves, I mean, who really knows? Um, One and two are even matchups. Astros fans are well familiar with Charlie Morton and postseason Charlie Morton. So he goes in game one. He's not going to be phased by the crowd here. No crowds in the postseason last year, minimal crowds in the postseason. But Charlie Morton in the pitching matchup dominated Lance McCullers in game seven after the Astros had rallied from 0-3 down. So if you get Fenway Fromber, hey, the Astros are in business. That he'll be that good again is unlikely, Though the Braves lineup isn't as good overall as the Red Sox lineup. Uh, Luis Garcia, presuming he's your game two guy, as he should be, because he's been much better at home than on the road all season. Coming off the performance of his life in the clincher on Friday, he'll have four days rest. Whatever they uncovered, Brent Strom and anyone else involved to reposition his foot that jacked his velocity up three miles per hour on his fastball over anything that we've consistently seen before. Uh, I want him back on the home mound as soon as possible. The Braves go with a lefty in Max Fried, who was really good this year. Not a household name, maybe not even in his own household, uh, but 14-7 and seven and the pitching quality numbers to back it up. One interesting thing on Fried is he actually fared better against righties than lefties this year. So Brantley and Jordan and Tucker. Uh, I'm guessing that Dusty will stick with Brantley even against the lefty starter, given given that fact. Uh, I think those matchups are a push, uh, as is Jose Arquiti, if Arquiti is right anyway, against Ian Anderson in Game 3, full-time young, really gifted starter for the Braves. And then both teams are in grab-bag mode in Game 4. I think the Braves more solidly know we're going with Drew Smiley, another lefty, uh, whereas the Astros will probably go Zach Greinke and should have someone warming up with Greinke in the bullpen before the game. Uh, But in terms of the big-picture starting pitching, I think it's a pretty even Steven uh, match, Astros and Braves.
2: You mentioned a couple of guys, or you mentioned one guy in particular that I want to talk about, which is Jose Architi. We have not seen much from him. We have seen a little bit from Christian Javier, and what we've seen out of Christian looks very, very promising. How do you think those two guys in particular are going to be used in this series? Well, if you run into trouble in either games
4: one or two, but you're not being blown out. Javier's good for one multi-inning relief outing. So let's say Fromber only goes three and a third, but you're down four-two when he's out of the game. I would think Javier's the guy there. Uh, but if you use him game one multi-innings, well, you're not coming back the next night with him. Then you get an off day before game three. Um, if you don't use him in Game 1, you have him available in Game 2, then you have the off day. Uh, How much workload could he handle, say, twice within three days? You do have off days after Game 2, and if the series extends, after Game 5. I think Jake Odorizzi's probably been removed from the equation unless it's a a lopsided game. Uh, But really, at home, Fromber and Garcia, even though the Red Sox clobbered both the first time out, I think it's reasonable expectation. They're going to give you at least, say, five innings, So then does Dusty want to go to Javier as that bridge, shortening the bridge down, or hey, I got good work out of Maton, and Stanek seems to be on his game, as opposed to going a multi-inning guy before you get to Graveman and, and Presley late.
2: Okay, let's switch over to the offense. This looks like a battle of the two hottest offensive players in Jordan Alvarez versus Eddie Rosario. But beyond that, these are two offenses that can get it done. Who do you give the edge to in this series? It sounds like Houston, but I want to hear your thoughts.
4: It's Houston. The Astros have the better, deeper lineup. And again, it's a matter of sample size.
2: Eddie Rosario
4: has been a nice player. He was real good after the acquisition at the trade deadline. And he turned into a freaking monster in the, the league championship series. Is he going to sustain? Or you know what? Spigots get turned off, whether it's new batch of games, different batch of pitchers. All right? Kike Hernandez had been destroying the world into the Astros series. And then suddenly last two, three games like the entire Red Sox offense. Uh, but overall pedigree and depth, clear advantage Astros. You go individually on the corners. Yuli Gurley had a real good year. No team other than the Astros will always stick with our own guys. No team's going to take Gurriel over Freddie Freeman. Uh, the last two years, Austin Riley's been a better player than Alex Bregman. But Alex Bregman also has October and World Series bona fides. Uh, but I think you go one through nine in the lineup or the games in Atlanta, one through eight and the pitcher spot, uh, the Astros have the better offense. So if both teams perform to the same degree of potential, the Astros should score
2: more runs. OK, so but you mentioned on something that I think is important, which is that pitcher spot. They're going to have to go to Atlanta and they're going to have to navigate that pitcher spot. And, and yet they've got guys, you know, that they DH here and Yordan and Brantley. How do you see them navigating? Could we are we going to see both Yordan and Brantley in the outfield?
4: I think in game three, Tucker will play center field. They'll be facing the right handed starter, Ian Anderson. So left field DH, whichever you would switch them during the season. Well, Brantley goes to right field. Yordan obviously is only going to play left field. Uh, McCormick or Siri sits. Game four is your decision facing the lefty. You know, if there's a play in the outfield with Tucker in center, who is not the center fielder, that he is the right fielder. Obviously, their overall defense is better when it's McCormick or maybe even Siri in center. Uh, against the lefty, Brantley didn't hit lefties all year. Did have a couple of hits against the Red Sox, particularly Martin Perez, who's a lousy left-handed pitcher. Uh, but I think unless they run into a calamity in the outfield, Dusty's going to be inclined to go Brantley left, or excuse me, Yordan left, Tucker center, Brantley right.
2: Umpires have been a big story this postseason. We saw the NLDS check swing called a strike to in the Giants season. In the ALDS, there was the Garcia strike that was called a ball that led to a big inning. In the ALCS, there was the ball that could have been called a strike on Castro that allowed him to untie the game late. It was interesting here that there are no umps assigned to this World Series that are in the top 20% of accuracy. Four are well below average. Ron Culpa is statistically the third worst umpire in the league. Astros fans will remember him. They have a history. How do you see umpiring playing into this series?
4: Uh, To some, that's Ron culpable. Um, (laughs) You know, the strength of the union, You'd like it to be a pure merit system that you take the seven best umpires, right, six and an alternate or two alternates, whatever you want to go with. And that's what you go with, especially when every game, home plate umpire in particular, every game's evaluated and graded. It's just not the way they do it. But uh, hey, no, Les Diaz. Hey, no, Angel Hernandez. Uh, the question is, is there a disproportionate percentage of bad calls one way or the other? Right? The Astros had a couple that they could say, oh, my goodness. Well, so could the Red Sox. So at what point in the game, where do you say, oh, that call pivoted the game? Um, Right, Ivaldi's pitch to Castro, yeah, it was a strike, but it wasn't a strike right down the heart of the plate. It's a pitch that it doesn't make it right, that it can be missed by umpires a little higher percentage of the time than some other pitchers. It also didn't mandate that Ivaldi then left a pitch in his own or dictate that Castro was going to line it for the base hit. So uh, human error, I am not a believer that, well, it's just a part of the game where law and order is concerned. Their job is to get everything right. And while no one can expect 100%, it's why I'm for getting us to robot umpiring because human error is when a shortstop kicks a ground ball or a base running mistake is made. It's not supposed to be when black and white, ball or strike, safe are out and the umpire gums it up and you don't have a replay mechanism to fix it.
2: Amen. And then lastly, It seems like the national media have finally, I think, kind of reconciled the Astros and the cheating scandal from 2017. I think a lot of them either tired of talking about it or have come around to the fact of, hey, the Astros are just good. Should the Astros close the deal in this series and bring home a second championship in five years, What will that do to kind of reconcile, if not validate what they did in 2017? I know the black mark's never going to go away, but what does this do to validate 2017?
4: Yeah, um, out damn spot, right? The spot will never come out, but it does not rend the entire garment as as trash. Um, Look, they did it. They were caught. If we're all driving 68 on the freeway in a 65 and you get caught for the ticket, that's how it goes. Uh, But any idea that the Astros were built on the system and uh, that it was smoke and mirrors or uh, completely delegitimized, that's just silliness. If you are an Astros fan and four years after the fact, whether it's New York, L.A., Boston, anywhere else, and people are still so miserable or irate over that, I wouldn't say take pity on them, but have a chuckle at their expense. Uh, there really is no reason for an Astros fan to be bothered retroactively at this point. And there can be zero legitimate questions, I guess, uh, about anything that the 2019 Astros have achieved this close to winning the World Series and now 2021, where uh, they are going to win this World Series in five.
7: Continuing the rest of the program this afternoon, we have Happy and whole Him with Pastor Joel, followed by a motorsports update from David Land and a history moment from the Census Bureau. Get out there and enjoy this day, and tomorrow we have more rain coming at you at the end of the week, and the weather looking good for trick-or-treat. So if you've got any plans for Saturday and Sunday, get out and enjoy it. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Michiana Speak Out. Stay safe. Keep a positive outlook.
6: Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. In Reader's Digest, there was once this funny but true story of a teacher who passed out to her students a realistic-looking copy of the Declaration of Independence. And it eventually found its way to the desk of a first-generation immigrant student. And this young boy stared reverently at it for some time, and then he took out his pen and added his own signature to it. This is akin to what we read in Psalm 44, which begins, we have heard it with our ears O god our ancestors have told us what you did in their days in days long ago with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors you crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish that's how psalm 44 begins god's people retelling the story of their forefathers in the beginning of their nation israel and then they write themselves into this story verse 4. You are my king and my god, who decrees victories for Jacob. Th- through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow, my sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. We hear in verses 4 to 8, not a declaration of independence, but a declaration of dependence with a pledge of allegiance to Almighty God. There's complete recognition that God alone gets the credit for any and all success in this life. This, my friends, is faith. Total trust in God. Things couldn't be better if you're a child of God. And then, disaster. Verses 9 to 11 but now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. The other day I read a quote from a Christian pastor who said, we believe what we experience. The idea being that we don't have to live as victims if we simply have enough faith. If we trust in God, there's no reason why we shouldn't be overcomers. There's a lot of this way of thinking that goes on in various Christian circles. But what do you do when your experience completely contradicts your belief? In Psalm 44, God's people are trusting Him. They're living faithfully. Listen to verses 17 and 18. All this came upon us. Though we had not forgotten you, we had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. Verses twenty, and twenty-one. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? They are obeying God. They're trusting in him. And they go out to face the enemy and they get slaughtered. They're scattered across the nation. Their homeland is plundered. And it is God who is doing this, verse 19. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Friends, what do we do with this? What do we do when what we confess and believe are nothing like our life experience? What do we do when we see the people of God getting slaughtered, like we recently saw in Afghanistan? Or how about those missionaries recently kidnapped in Haiti? How do we understand Psalm forty-four, twenty-two? 22? Yet for your sake, that's God's sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And this is not simply an Old Testament people of God thing. Paul quotes it in the New Testament in Romans 8, a chapter we could call the triumph of God's love. Paul writes in Romans eight thirty-six to 39, as it is written, How can Paul say that we're more than conquerors when we're being slaughtered? How can he say we're conquerors when we face death all day long, when it seems like God is absent, or taking a nap when we are most in need? A dear Christian woman called me up yesterday, exhausted, weary, saddened. Her husband is dying of cancer. We live in a world where pledging allegiance to God, where Inserting our names into the Christian story may not make our lives better. The reality is being one of God's people may even make our lives worse. Friends, we need Psalm 44 for times like this because it ends with the psalmist doing the thing that you and I need to be doing. He says in verse 26, Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of Your unfailing love. We are to keep calling out for God. And we do what Paul later understood. We understand our hope rests on God's unfailing love. Love that outlasts the worst this life can throw at us. Because God's love lasts longer than our life in this world. The proof is seen at the cross. Where our Lord Jesus became a slaughtered lamb who felt most profoundly God's absence. But he passed through death into the new creation life. And we will too, if we keep putting our trust in God's unfailing love. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to.
0: This is News Source 1 Michiana, your comprehensive source for news and issues that affects our communities. Using internet radio, podcasts, and Facebook video shows. We have you covered.
5: It was a unique and exciting weekend in racing. The United States Grand Prix produced the largest weekend attendance at nearly 400,000 people that Formula One has ever had. We're going to talk about in this video why the United States has finally, apparently, embraced Formula One. And also, the very first autonomous race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was absolutely a demolition derby, but I didn't totally hate it. So we're going to talk about that right now. So, we will get to Formula 1 in a moment, but I want to talk about something that's extremely controversial, and that is driverless race cars. Now, there have been a few attempts to actually host a or stage a competition or race with driverless cars. Um, everyone has seen the footage of the robo-race going wrong. I think that was at Silverstone. But the Indianapolis Motor Speedway hosted the Indy Autonomous Challenge last weekend, and... This was the first autonomous race of its kind, especially at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but it may well be the first one in the United States. I'll have to look that up later and perhaps put something on the screen. But I was there. I took a look at it. I checked it out because I was curious. And you know, before I we launch into the highlights which includes a lot of crashes, I do want to say this. Um this was not traditional racing in any sense of the word. This was really just a time trial. Um the nine teams that were there. Only, I think seven actually made it to the track. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but the, the qualification process was you had to do three laps at speed and your average speed put you into potentially the final shootout between the top three teams. So three teams made it. And then the competition was you had to do four warm up laps and then you had to do uh two laps at speed and your fastest, um, of the two, your fastest average of the two laps was your final speed and that ultimately determined the winner. I forgot to mention in the first round you also had to complete a slalom and also have the car drive back Uh, to the pits um, under its own power. All these cars were driverless and they were not remote control cars either. Um, There were also not professional teams here. I think that's important to say before you start seeing the cars crashing. This was all university students. And again, I'll talk about it after the highlights. But I do wonder if this, I don't even necessarily want to call it a sport, but this competition may have a future if you start seeing real manufacturer money um, jump into it. So let's take a look at the highlights. So Autonomous Tiger Racing never actually made it out of the pits. Now, they didn't get much further than black and gold Autonomous Racing because the Purdue-led car managed to get in the wall before even exiting the pits. Speaking of the pit exit at Indianapolis, AI Tech Racing, which was a school from Hawaii, decided to take the road course their car did and uh, spin out, Uh, thankfully no damage. Couldn't say the same for the MIT pit RW team. That car crashed coming to the green, drove straight into the entrance to the pit wall. That was the biggest crash of the challenge. The Polymove team was one of the better ones throughout the weekend. It was going for the win when it touched the wall in the main straightaway and then went straight into the Turn 1 wall. The two teams that were the top of the class were TUM Autonomous Motorsports, which clocked two laps over 130 mile an hour and had a 130 mile per hour average in the shootout. Euro Racing went faster and did a one-lap track record, autonomous track record, of 139 miles an hour, but Mario was slowing down on its second lap and did not complete the challenge, giving the win to TUM, or a T-U-M Autonomous Motorsport from Germany. Okay, so these are my thoughts. It was... The, the entertainment value from this competition was, number one, going to watch the robots crash million-dollar Indy Lights cars. That was fantastic. I got my money's worth um, from that. But I would say that, that the entertainment value is very much, not very much, but I think there's something to be said about setting track records the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And yes, these are robots doing it. But it's kind of fascinating to think that the, the, um, the German car, which did a two-lap average of somewhere in the 130 mile an hour range, would have qualified in the pole... For the 1950 Indianapolis 500. It's kind of... It's definitely an interesting technological challenge. And from that perspective, it's interesting. Was there head-to-head competition? No. And I was kind of hoping... And and maybe there will be someday where you actually get two or three or an entire field of AI cars out there because that would be quite a spectacle. Um, But, you know, that's the other thing. This was... This definitely wasn't for entertainment. This was very much a demonstration. There was a lot of downtime. There was a lot of times when the cars would just drive very slowly around the track. Actually, that was one of the more impressive things was many of the students programmed the AI car on the warmup laps to weave back and forth to warm up the tires. So that, that in, and of, in and of itself was, was impressive, again, from a technological standpoint. The other thing that I should note about this is that everyone was using the exact same Hunkos Racing, Indy Lights cars, um, and they were all specced performance-wise uh, to be as equal as you can get um, racing machines. The difference and the engineering challenge of this was not uh, was not at all setting the cars up, it was setting the AI, the artificial intelligence, up to drive around the track. Many of those crashes you saw um, were blamed on what what the teams were describing as a GPS failure. And again, pardon me, I'm not an expert on autonomous racing, um, but that is what they were blaming um, the crashes on. That mean, every, to a man, it was every single team was blaming it on that. So, um, you know, I, we'll have to see what happens in the future with this sort of a competition, whether or not it will actually happen again, um, because... Again, these were million-dollar race cars going out there racing for a million-dollar prize. So the the expense of this um, had to have been enormous. So my question is, what is the future of this? Because I think if you want to turn this into some sort of a spectacle where you actually have enough people buying tickets to perhaps justify this sort of a thing, I wonder, you know, could you perhaps set a challenge of going 300 miles per hour? Um, I think the money aspect, I mean, obviously it incentivized the schools to come out to it, but as a spectator, I wasn't really all that invested in, you know, some German school taking a million dollars from um, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, I think it was more impressive to just kind of see how fast can you make a robot go around the racetrack. And so if you're going to an autonomous race, that seems like. That's the reason you're going to go. You're not going because it's going to be, you know, an exciting Indy 500 style race where you're really getting quite an entertaining spectacle. You're getting a sporting event. This is something completely different. It's almost like watching a really expensive NR 2003 race. (laughs) And yes, the United States Grand Prix, uh, needless to say, was a smashing. Success this weekend. Uh, the reported numbers are upwards of 400,000. Um, certainly, the race day attendance was, if not um, on par with the Indianapolis 500 of this year, which of course was at a reduced capacity, um, it was close. So, just straight off the bat, the fact that the top two sporting events, not only in the United States, but the fact that they did both take place in the United States, um, but across the world, were not only auto racing events, but open-wheel racing events, is pretty impressive from a spectator standpoint. The question, of course, is why? Why is Formula One finally getting the foothold in the United States? And I know a lot of people are going to immediately jump to Netflix. And I do have three reasons, I think, that Formula One is gaining this foothold in the United States. And Netflix is certainly one of them. There's no doubt about it that something that has been able to catch the attention of more casual racing fans or perhaps folks who have no interest at all or had no interest at all in auto racing but see this overly dramatized version of Formula One made them interested enough to tune into races and clearly made them interested enough to go buy tickets um, to... A race in their home country is it totally 100 percent the reason no i don't think so because i think a lot of racing series are looking at netflix or looking at streaming um or streaming like shows as the magic bullet because they see that as the like the shining example of what formula one has managed to build in this country but i think one of the things that i think a lot of people are missing is that formula one built the groundwork before they got the netflix show So they had things established for years and years um, before the Netflix show dropped. For example, if you are subscribed to the Formula One channel on YouTube, you will not ever forget a Grand Prix. And if you miss a practice session, a qualifying session, a race session, the highlights are up almost immediately. You can always stay in the loop I mean, Formula One social media game is absolutely fantastic. I'm just speaking from a YouTube perspective, but if you go to Twitter, if you go to Instagram, TikTok, it's all fantastic. But on the YouTube side, you never forget when a Formula One race is, and even when there isn't a Formula One race, they upload podcasts featuring you know big names every week. They upload uh, uh, not as much as IndyCar or NASCAR or IMSA, but they do upload classic races and they upload classic race content, and that's. So important. Some of those top 10 videos and, and videos that, that kind of go over previous Grand Prix, which helps those folks coming in from Netflix to get educated on the history of the sport. And, you know, of course, that's just a, a you know, once you've got that boulder rolling down the hill, it's, it's not going to stop. So, from that perspective, I think Formula One has built a fantastic base, but the other thing I think that they've done really well, and I think a lot of credit goes to Codemasters for being able to do this, is that they have a video game. And not only a video game, but they have a good video game, a video game that works and a video game that represents the sport and, again, helps people learn at any time that they want. Um, It's not just like, the Formula One experience, I think this is the best way to put it, doesn't end when you turn off the TV at the end of the race. You've got all the stuff happening on social media, good and bad, um, but you also have ways to experience the sport and engage with the sport once the race is over. You can go on the YouTube channel, the comments are open, so you can create all the memes you want, Um, you can go and play the video game you can learn about the sport, you can interact, you can build and grow a community. And then these people all get together and they say, well, Hey, let's go to Austin, you know, and let's go buy $300 tickets to go stand in a, in a big, huge mosh pit at the United States Grand Prix. So, you know, I think it's not just Netflix though. Netflix, I mean, it's an, it's an undeniable part of it, but I think again, it's, it's much, much deeper. Formula one has done the work To break into the US market, they have not just fallen into this. And I think other racing series would be very wise not to just look at Netflix and say, oh, of course, that's the magic bullet, because it's not. You have to have everything else that Formula One does. And of course, Formula One has the budget to do these things. And again, when you start talking about American drivers and perhaps American teams in Formula One, they're doing this without that right now. And so if American drivers and American teams start heading into Formula 1, this thing could really be a powder keg that's lit. And even if, especially if, the American drivers and the American teams start winning races. Look out. But at this point, yeah, it's it's pretty clear. And we'll have to see if it gets oversaturated. That's the other thing I think a lot of people have been talking about. Is, well, with Miami and potentially a third race in the United States, in Las Vegas coming how's that going to work out? We'll have to see. Thank you guys so much for watching. This has been David Land on YouTube. Subscribe for more motorsport content, and I will see you in the next video.
9: America Monday October 25th October is Italian American Heritage Month a celebration concurrent with commemorations of German and Polish ancestry groups October is significant for Italian Americans because it is the birth month of Christopher Columbus it's merely happy coincidence that it's also National Pizza Month Although the very continents of the Western Hemisphere are named for Italian explorer Amerigo Vespucci, Italians were sparse in emigrating here. A few Italian craftsmen arrived in the Jamestown colony in 1610, but were followed by few others. In 1838, three Italians were recorded as immigrants. By 1914, that number peaked at over 283,000. Today, some 16.1 million people, about 5% of our population of over 331 million, claim Italian ancestry. Profile America is in its 25th year as a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Profile America, Tuesday, October 26th. October is Dental Hygiene Month. Perhaps there is a seasonal prompting for this observance given the sugary infusions into our diets beginning with Halloween at month's end. The modern nylon bristle toothbrush dates back only some 80 years, but the human use of tools to clean teeth extends into very ancient history, around 5,000 years ago. Versions of toothpaste date back even earlier, though the paste in a tube appeared in the late 19th century. Today there are many brands of antibacterial toothpastes and carefully designed and angled toothbrushes. All this gives a head start to the labors of America's 178,000 dentists, 202,000 dental hygienists, and 330,000 dental assistants, working in about 136,000 dental offices. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau, online at census.gov.
0: This is News Source 1 Michiana. Elkhart South Bend.